Worried about letting someone else pick out the perfect avocado for your perfect impress them on the third date guacamole? Well, good thing Instacart shoppers are as picky as you are. They find ripe avocados like it's their guac on the line. They are milk expiration date detectives. They bag eggs like the 12 precious pieces of cargo they are. So let Instacart shoppers overthink your groceries so that you can overthink what you'll wear on that third date. Download the Instacart app to get free delivery on your first three orders while supplies last. Minimum $10 per order. Additional terms apply. Deceptively Fast Podcast. Number two. I still have no intro music. This would be number three, except I recorded one with Garrett the other day. It did not go well. Um, I'm still trying to figure out how to edit a few things. My technical inadequacies are really, really, really coming to the forefront right now. I'm a little bit embarrassed about it because I've been in this business for five years and I've learned so little. And especially when I try to, I'm I'm trying to work with this microphone that uh, I'm probably going to return immediately after this podcast if I can get away with it. I think I've got all the components so I can get a simpler and yet better microphone that's a little bit more portable something i can use a headset like we use on remote um so i could do it for my car i could do it in various places the dream is that i'm gonna end up getting kind of a like an rv conference van type of setup that i can write off on my taxes but also use for podcasting and maybe with a cot in the back i need to do it in a way where it doesn't look like uh hey come on into my van and let me record you. I need to look at it, make it look professional. But I, I very much value mobility. And right now with my current setup, I have no mobility. I have no expertise with how to use this equipment. I, I have to go back to the studio if I want it to sound good at all. So this should get better. <clears throat> but today we're just going to do a Q&A since the, the, second, the would-be second podcast I was going to take on the First Amendment. And Garrett and I did a pretty good job of it. Um... But I, I want to edit a few things. I was I was just flat out way, 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 way wrong on a few things. And I, I, I'm not comfortable with it. So uh, I'm, I'm going to stick more in my comfort zone for a while. When I venture out into things that require a little bit more expertise, I'm going to interview people who are actual experts about things. I know that's not typically what you do in sports radio. Usually it's just a couple of yahoos talking smack about stuff and you uh, you talk to somebody else who claims they're an expert in something but they're not they're very very few experts there's like four experts out there in sports everybody else is just trying to figure out what the hell they're doing and justifying it with stats uh but i'm gonna do a question and answer here i i reached out and asked for questions on the internet you guys provided them so i'll do this about once a month i'll start off with this question from aggie rick is the podcast going to be weekly I would ideally like to be doing this three times per week. I got to work some staples in. Um, I'd like to, you know, do the NFL slash sports, but mostly NFL at least once a week, especially once we start getting into the season. Stuff that we might not typically cover on Mad Radio, um, more you know, league oriented. Maybe some of the headier stuff with some of the nerds that I like, like uh, Greg Cassell, people like that. Not that I could get Greg Cassell on. He's kind of pricey, but uh, I could get him on once. It's a matter of getting him on every single week. Somebody like that. I like those guys, Daniel Jeremiah, those types where you kind of you have a more X's and O's conversation about it than, than sometimes works on radio. So I know a lot of you guys would like that. Uh, but I, I'll do a question and answer once every couple weeks, once a month, and put a little bit of elbow grease into it, you know, where I'm not just 
doing it just to fill time. So like today I had my wife curate some of these questions for me. So I had her I had her organize them is into categories that she saw fit and I think she came up with basically personal questions, sciencey stuff, um, fight stuff, various things involving confrontation, football-y stuff, and then at the very end, oh, alcohol stuff. This might take a while. I don't know if I'm going to get to all these questions. And then at the end, Texany stuff, uh, Houston Texany stuff. So a lot of football stuff, but also Astro stuff. And I think there's a Rockets question in there somewhere. So maybe we'll, we'll do it that way. That way, anybody who doesn't care about Houston because you don't live in Houston, you can just turn me off right at the end. But uh, I had a good response from the first podcast. Garrett and I, uh, Garrett and I, yapping, got pretty good engagement. Most people that listen to the podcast actually listened all the way to the end. So I'm just going to keep stretching the podcast out and make it as long as it can possibly be to the point where it becomes an endurance death march, and uh, and we'll see how many people I can make quit. So Aggie Rick, my answer is I'd like it to be three times per week, but I also originally wanted it to be once a week, and right now I'm pushing on podcast number two coming out at, at, at the two-week mark. So I got I to gotta suck it up. I got to suck it up, as you would with gassers or wind sprints or anything else like that. Eric Humphreys asked, what are some fiction authors you enjoy reading? Uh, I guess the, the one that would pop to mind first is Cormac McCarthy. Um, and he's not, I don't know when the last time he put something out, but he's 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 written the most books, I think, that as an adult, they've kind of affected me deeply you're watching it you're reading it and and uh, it it feels like you're watching a movie because the imagery is so good but he also doesn't use a lot of punctuation he kind of breaks a lot of the rules in a lot of ways he doesn't use a lot of punctuation he doesn't use quotation marks you can't always tell exactly who's saying uh what they're saying but it all flows really well so he wrote no country for old men um blood meridian which is one of my favorite books of all time and then the road also i haven't seen the movie the road um but I'm guessing that if you have seen the movie The Road, you'll like the book that much better because that's how that's the way it works. That's the way it always works. And I'm not saying that in like a snotty, oh, the book is so much better than the movie because I'm smart. I, it's because it's got more content. It'd be like if you read, if you watched Game of Thrones and it was just two and a half hours, and then all of a sudden, like if they condensed everything and down in a two and a half hour movie, and then all of a sudden you found out that there was, oh, no, actually there's five, six seasons, however many seasons, and you can watch ten episodes each season. You're going like to like the 50, 60 episodes a lot better because it fills everything in. So if you like a movie, this is what I suggest to you. Go find the book. First lesson I ever learned with that was John Irving with, um, oh, what was the, oh, Garp, The World According to Garp. Because I saw the movie and that was good enough. But then you read the book and you're like, oh, there's a, there's a whole, no, whole other world out there. It was also one of the only movies I liked uh, Robin Williams in. It was before Robin Williams became the just the, the goofy, hey, I'm Robin Williams. Uh, in a, which is funny because that was, that was probably right when he was doing Mork and Mindy and everything. But he just he tried a serious role and he was really good at it. Uh, seven, not six. Oh, I'm surprised my wife put this in here. It asks, uh, how big is it? Uh, Ten inches. 10 inches. That is my hand size, which is the way they measured at the combine. You spread your hands out and you measure from pinky to thumb. I, I know this. It's fresh in my mind because Cody Stutes did it the other day. And I think 10 inches about average for defensive linemen. J.J. Watts, if I remember correctly, I think J.J. Watts hand size is like 11 inches or 11 and a quarter inches. 
DeForest Buckner, I remember he had the record. Maybe somebody broke it this year. But DeForest Buckner, I want to say, had like damn near 12-inch hands, which are freakishly big. And that's what happens sometimes when you meet some of these NFL dudes. J.J. was one of the first guys I met where he looked so much bigger in person than he does on television. Usually it's the opposite. Usually guys are a little bit smaller when you meet him in person. I met JJ in person and it was when I'd just come back into town to start doing media stuff in 2012. So he wasn't the huge, huge deal that he was yet. But, uh, but I remember meeting him and just thinking like this guy, this guy could easily be an offensive tackle. Like easily and be a really good offensive tackle. He could, you know, he could put on 30, 40 pounds and still pretty, still be pretty lean. So 10 inches there. Um, speaking of that though, since I think you were asking about a different size of something, I'm watching this documentary a while back with my wife and it was about, oh, it was a Rolling Stone documentary about Rolling Stone, the magazine. And they're going through all these different phases. And there was this one phase, I think it was in the seventies. It was in the seventies because the the six, late sixties and the seventies, because it was this woman named Cynthia Plastercaster. Cynthia Plastercaster, she would go, she and this other woman would go around and, and take casts, like these plaster casts of different rock stars' penises. And it was the, it was the weirdest thing in the world because you'd see them. And, like, for one, I, I don't think any of these guys would have agreed to it in this day and age, but they're just, um, they're just out there. She's got them all stacked up on a table and there's Jimi Hendrix's junk. And then here's some dude from the birds and then some dude from the stones or something. I don't know which bands they were, uh, but the striking thing was the normalcy of it all. You're so damned immune to everything these days. Cause you're watching porn. People are watching porn so often that you don't really, uh, yeah, I think people get a warped sense of what, dudes look like. So I think it would be a good exercise for young men and women to be able to take in this exhibit. I think she travels around with it as an exhibit and see, uh, look, a little bit of normalcy. Some of them, though, too, it's like uncomfortable. You can see they're, they're crammed in. I, I don't know what technique she was using, but it looked like the mold was kind of more, maybe more viscous than would be ideal. And they're, the, the junk is kind of going at right angles every now and then. And I feel bad for those dudes because those obviously weren't getting the benefit of the fully straightened out member. Uh, and I don't know how long you had to. Yeah, boy, I'm gonna have to. Uh, I have to be sure my daughter's not listening to this podcast at this part. So anyway, uh, Plastercaster, check it out if you so choose. Stephen R. Flores. Let's see. I think this gets into the this gets into the sciencey stuff a little bit. I'm gonna. I'll get to that one later. Um, Eagle Baldini, who's a who's a friend of mine from college. Uh, that's not his real name. He uses a pseudonym on Twitter. I don't say his real name in case he's I, who knows what he's been tweeting about Trump stuff or something on his actual Twitter account. Uh, why does Donald Duck wear a shirt and no pants? Um, that's an interesting. Why does he wear a hat? Why does he wear a? He wears like a. Hold on, I'm gonna pull this up. He wears like a sailor's hat. Oh, that makes sense. He's a duck. He wears a sailor's hat and he wears a, like a, a sailor's shirt. No pants. I think probably because uh, it wouldn't work well. Goofy, if Goofy is Goofy a dog? Goofy's a dog. Goofy can wear pants and it doesn't change what he looks like as a dog. I don't think you can put a. I don't think you can put pants on a duck and still have it look like a duck. 
So you got to make him look human somehow, but you don't want to dress him up completely to where he looks like a, a dapper duck or something like that. He still needs to look goofy with that big fat ass of his, which uh, which has aged well with the times. Now people are into fat asses. Used to be more embarrassing. It, oh, okay. Let's see. That's a, that's another. That's a sciencey one too. Oh, I see what I did here. I collated these wrong. Hmm. Let's see. Paul Gallant asks, what's the cultiest thing you've ever been a part of? Uh, I guess my fraternity. I was in I was in DU, Delta Upsilon was a college. It was a lot of football players and former football players. And I think, honestly, I think it was bad for our football team because we weren't on scholarship. There's no athletic scholarships at Ivy League schools. So whatever financial aid you get, it's based on need for the most part. They, I don't know, they, you know, they, 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 they twerk it a little bit. Um, but you're, because we were not on scholarship, you join this fraternity and it's a bunch of football players, but you know, nobody's on scholarship. So when guys are getting yelled at by their coaches or their grades start suffering. They say, screw this. Uh, like, what am I going to do? Go play pro football? Very few of them are going to, other than Seth. So they would quit. So you're sitting in this fraternity, and like during spring ball, when you're trying to get to bed early and you got to go to workouts at 5 a.m., everybody else is out partying and having a good time. And it was very tempting, very tempting, the, the, the pull, the lure of pulling guys away from football. I don't think it was good for our football team. And the coaches didn't really like it either. I think things have gotten a lot more tame since then. That was the cultiest thing I was ever involved in. I can remember some of the things when we did were, when we were hazing were pretty scary and pretty exhausting. <clears throat> um, I'll tell you, I'll tell you a sad story though, is when we were going through like our hell week, my sophomore year, I pledged as a sophomore, Jeff Stenstrom was a teammate of mine. And uh, he was a younger brother, Steve Stenstrom, who was a quarterback at Stanford and ended up playing in the NFL for a while. But Jeff Stenstrom was a freshman at the time, and he was pledging with me. And he was just an awesome dude, uh, just an awesome, awesome guy. And we got uh, not even very far into this week at all. It was like the very first evening. He was sick already. And uh, on the first evening, something happened and uh you know we were just we weren't doing anything really we were just we were all supposed to be at the house he got sick and they took him to the hospital because he was that sick it was like very 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 flu-like symptoms and uh and he ended up having meningitis so uh he ends up in a in a coma in the hospital for several days and and obviously um, boy, I haven't talked about this in a long time. Um, you know, in, in a house full of young men that are in, in other ways very, very immature, and especially that's the scary thing about pledging fraternities back in the day was that you've got these juniors and seniors who are, who are only 21, 22 years old, uh, you know, in charge of these younger men's physical safety and physical well-being while they're also putting through all kinds of uh, hazing rituals. Um, but they, you know, they, they ceased everything while this was going on. And, uh, and it, was, it was a couple of days of Jeff's family coming back and slowly realizing what was going to happen. Um, and, and it ended up, uh, ended up obviously being way worse than any kind of hell week. Um, but I, I think what they try to do with those rituals a lot of times in any organization is when you make something difficult, people bind together more closely when they go through a hard experience together. Uh, and uh, that, so we went through Jeff being in a coma and, and ultimately passing away. And, uh, and we still, 
you know, the, that group of kids that, that went through that and were there to, to watch, you know, his family go through that and be a part of that. It was, uh, that was, that was one of the, 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 the biggest and toughest things that's, that's happened to me in my life outside of my own, uh, various family issues and deaths and, and all of those things and relationships. Um, but it's still, I, I ended up when I was in college and on into the NFL, I would, write Jeff's initials, JS, somewhere on my body every every game. Like either on the inside, I'd write it no no place conspicuous or anything. Um because I didn't I didn't want to be an outward display, but Jeff was this awesome, awesome dude. Like this kid that was the prototype football player that you want. He could have been a throwback to the nineteen fifties or sixties. He just worked his butt off, was, you know, a freshman linebacker who got to play varsity some and played a lot on special teams and you just run down the field like with reckless abandon and and just do everything the way you wanted to do uh why you, the way you wanted a kid to play so i would write his initials like sometimes on the top of my shoes uh and sometimes on the inside of my wrist tape and and i would look at that when i was exhausted in a game as as a reminder of hey you know, uh, what, what would Jeff be doing in this instance? Or wouldn't Jeff love to be playing out here and doing this? And I, I felt that and I carried that with me the entire time I was in the NFL and, and always tried to remember that just how lucky I was to be doing what I was doing. And that a kid like Jeff, who, you know, really honestly, probably would have worked harder than me, um, would have had more passion than me, all those things. I, I tried to tried to have a, a little bit of something for him. And I got to tell his dad that at a, um, at a, at a presentation that we did for Jeff uh, about five or six years ago. And that was, uh, that was really, really one of the nicer moments in my life. Steve Bunin, formerly of CSN Houston, Ask me who is the best best former CSN Houston anchor you ever worked with. Steve, all apologies to you. I have to say Kelly Johnson because Kelly and I hosted a football show three nights a week on CSN Houston, I think. And it was really, it was honestly, it was way above what I should have been doing. I think that might have been, that might have been the high point in my television career. I was watching some old clips the other day. I was actually pretty good at it, and then I feel like I've gotten steadily worse at television since then. I don't know what's going on. I don't know if I'm trying too hard or not trying hard enough, uh, but I, I will say Kelly Johnson out of respect to her because I worked with her that whole time, and I felt like she was – I felt like she made me very much better. And I also – I also – I have a sneaking suspicion she didn't like me all that much. I don't know why. I just, I can't figure it out. I just had a sense that she didn't like me that much. I don't lose sleep over it or anything, um, but I could never figure it out why. And I think part of it was that I shout so much when I'm on. I'm like Stephen uh, Stephen A. Anderson on, on um, wait, 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 am I blanking here? Yeah, Stephen A. I'm like Stephen A. on uh, Stephen A. Smith. What the hell am I doing? Steven Anderson, Stephen A. Smith on television, and I don't, I don't think she appreciated that. So I think it was like a physically unpleasant experience for her working next to me. So there's a little bit of uh, a, a little bit of my inadequacy and my sense of uh, inferiority will lead me to say Kelly Johnson. But I love Steve Bune, and he's one of the fine people I've ever known. Brian McDonald from Sports Radio 610 asked, "Where did the chicken come from in the Payne Meltzer election announcement when Mike and I ran for president in 2016?" 
A lot of you guys didn't vote for me. Screw you. How you feel about that now? Uh, I had a I had a rooster underneath me because we'd we'd come up with some kind of slogan. Jim Mudd came up with some some kind of slogan: a, a rooster in every pot, a baby in every belly, and a rooster in every pot. That was Cowboy Dave from the Bull, the country station. That was his rooster. And I felt bad because I think the rooster was a little bit freaked out. And I'm a little bit freaked out by roosters, too. Um, but that was Cowboy Dave's rooster. Sciency and deeper stuff. K.R. Kenny says, some scientists predict, where is this? Some scientists predict that humans will be able to upload their consciousness to the cloud within the next 20 years and possibly be able to download it into a new body within the next 50 to 100 years. Would you do it? Uh, what are the moral implications of divorcing mind and body? Well, yeah, I'd definitely do it. I would do it 100%. 100%. Like, no doubt about it, I would do it. Uh, I, but my question, my question is this. I've actually thought about this before. If There are a couple things. One is, if you're just transferring all of my thoughts and memories into a computer and then you're downloading that into another human. Let's say, let's say it just even stays at the computer. Let's start with that. If you're downloading all my thoughts, everything else, and you, can, and you can download it to a computer, and then the computer can function as a human brain, I don't think, in my mind, I've still died. There's just going to be some new dude on that computer that happens to share all of my memories and everything. But I've died. Like, my inner drive to preserve myself, like my consciousness, that's different than, my consciousness is different than my collected memories and thoughts and all of those things. So I feel like I'll have died, there'll be a facsimile of me on that computer and maybe you download that to another human. So it's, that's good for my family. Because my family, it'll be the same dude. Like, he'll treat them the same way, he'll have the same personality, he'll have the same collective memories, all of those things. But I will have died. So ideally, I would do that selflessly, I think, to, because, look, uh, my family wants me around. It would be good for my family to have me around. By then, I'll be so damn wise uh, that they wouldn't know what to do without me. You're talking, what, 70, 80 years of, of, of experience and uh, into, into a brand-new computer with who knows what kind of hard drives they have by then? I think it's only fair. It's the, only, it's the most selfless thing I could do to do that. But ideally, I need to have it so... I'm actually gradually transferring my consciousness onto that computer I, so that I'm conscious of it as I kind of move out of my own head and into that other computer. We have a listener who had uh, her husband had a stroke, and I don't think she would want me saying who this is exactly, but I think a lot of our other, some of our listeners uh, know, know who I'm talking about, and she certainly does. Uh, but her husband had a stroke, and he, he got amnesia but didn't only get amnesia, but just kind of became a completely different person. So this is not the same scenario. This is just what popped into my head. So she's living with this guy who doesn't remember her. And not only that, doesn't enjoy the same things that they used to enjoy together, doesn't have the same tastes, likes, doesn't like the same food, all these things. So he's a completely different dude. And it, the marriage doesn't end up working out. But this poor woman basically has to mourn her husband. Her husband's living, you know, he's alive and, it, but, but it's not the same guy. So 
I would, uh, I'd be doing the opposite, I think. If I just downloaded it immediately into a computer, and then all of a sudden my wife and my daughter and my grandchildren and everything have this computer and it gets downloaded into a human being, they've got the same guy that's going to have the same relationship with them and everything. But I, for all intents and purposes, me, myself, the guy that's talking to this microphone right now, I would be dead. So ideally, if there's a first phase of this technology when it first comes out where you can download, I'm going to skip that phase. i got to stay alive until they can get to the point where, like, I I move the the focus of my existence out of my head into a computer, but I can sense that it's happening, and then my actual consciousness gets drifted into somebody else. Does that answer your question, KR Kenny, you bastard? Now I don't know what to think about like who I actually am. Uh, Stephen R. Flores asks, uh, do you know about the pineal gland and its production of dimethyltryptamine? Uh, I saw this when it came out, and I actually looked this up a little bit. The DME is this substance they think might be linked to a lot of um, like hallucinatory activity. They think they might be. It's what's secreted when you sleep, and it's produced in the pineal gland. This is the one thing I learned, though, Stephen Flores. Joe Rogan talked about this on a podcast like five or six years ago, and Joe Rogan was just kind of being Joe Rogan and talking about this crazy thing that he'd read about, and he's really cool. He's really good at doing that stuff, but people took it as like the word of God or Einstein or somebody, and I guess this is a sketchier sketchier topic or area than a lot of people think it is. I don't know if it means, I don't know, can you take DME? I'm I'm open to it. I'm up for it. I would like to try ayahuasca at some point. I'd like to try acid at some point um, in a very controlled situation just because there are all kinds of studies now showing that use of psychedelics um, can kind of change you for the better permanently, uh, or at least it has a long-lasting effect. They've done work with with terminally ill people who when they take LSD or mushrooms and doing it in a controlled environment with a certain kind of sensory input that you you learn to look outside yourself and see yourself as part of the universe and part of the whole and it is part of humanity. And it can be very soothing and very therapeutic to especially people that are undergoing terminal illness and, uh, you know, where you know that the end is in sight. And then obviously uh, Steve Jobs talked about that a lot. And I say a lot. I don't know. I read his biography, and there are quite a few references in there and in other articles about how he really thought that doing acid and going on his spiritual journey through India set him apart in a way from a lot of other people. Um, so I don't. That that's where I am. I'm not advocating it, kids. If you're a minor listening to me talk about this, just just wait. You know, I know I know way too many kids that did drugs uh, in their teens and ended up messing them up for life. Just wait until you're 43 years old, like I am, and uh, and then I'm probably gonna wait until my daughter's 18 because I just don't I don't I don't want to be the guy whose daughter got sick like at a sleepover and then when the parents called. The, the father was uh, tripping, tripping on acid. I don't want to be that guy. I, I can't be that guy. So I'll at the very least wait until my daughter's an adult. But maybe we'll get to, we'll have a big old ayahuasca trip to Peru. Bunch of, uh, a bunch of listeners and me and definitely Mike will go down to Peru and uh, we'll, all, we'll all trip together. Authentic Humanoid asks, which thought seems more wild? The universe coming to a, I think he means physical endpoint or the universe truly being infinite. If it is infinite, how do you process that? Wouldn't that mean that everything that ever has or will happen is already simultaneously happening right now somewhere? Um, I understand the last question. I'm not sure if it's definitely linked to being infinite. I I think that this, I think there's a couple things. One is 
if if the entire universe as we know it, like uh, our observable and theoretically observable universe, was once the size of an atom before the Big Bang, then I think that that opens up the possibility. It's much more likely in my mind that there are billions and billions, if not an infinite number of other universes. So if your definition of universe is kind of this collection of galaxies, then yeah, I think it's very, very likely that there are billions and billions or an infinite number of other universes if we were once the size of an atom. Um, I, as far as do all those universes actually define the actual universe and what is infinity? I think that we're, I think our biology doesn't allow us to really truly grasp infinity, whatever it might be. And the before time, the end of time, infinity itself, we understand mathematically what it means, but I don't think we can really grasp it. Just like I, there's things that a dog, a dog can understand some things, but it can't understand it on the same level as we do because it doesn't have the same brain. So I try not to sweat it too much. That's for the mathematicians. Um, as far as an actual end point, no, like it's harder for me to it's harder for me to grasp an end point than it is for me to grasp infinity. So does that mean that I actually can grasp infinity better than I thought? Because to add, uh, to to grasp a stopping point where all of a sudden there is no more time, uh, yeah, you know you know screw you, authentic humanoid, screw you, and screw K.R. Kenny for getting me thinking about this deep stuff. This is depressing. I'm gonna go out and look at the stars tonight and uh, and get all more depressed about it because I'll feel very very tiny. Prem Rama Mirtham asks if you could only save oh you son of a bitch if you could only save either one close relative. Or 17 kids in a high school, which would you, 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 you fucking dick. Um, all right, all right, all right, let's depoliticize this. If, uh, so we'll take it out of, let's get rid of the seven, uh, let's get rid of saying it's 17 kids. Let's say if you could only save one close relative or, or 30 strangers in a bus station somewhere, uh, this is the test. I think as, you're, as you evolve and if you're this completely and truly elevated society, you're supposed to value all human life equally. And, uh, you know, you love your neighbor, love your enemy, love all those people. Uh, I'm not there yet. I'm not there yet. I would be very, very selfish in protecting one over the multitudes, uh, almost to an extreme degree, I think, as long as the, the family member, you know, look, if the family member I'm protecting is a, a mass murderer or something, that's a whole different story. Like if I, if Charles Manson is my brother, <clears throat> I'm diamond out Charles Manson. I'm sorry. Uh, I, I would uh, hope for the best for him. I'd be with him until he hopefully never got out of jail again. Long so that's a whole other story. But uh, as long as he's a good and virtuous person that isn't harming society, I'm not evolved there to the point where I'm going to protect 50 people versus uh, versus <clears throat> just a family member. As far as what that means for gun control laws and everything, go, go screw yourself. I'm not answering. I'm not getting into that right now. I'm, I'm going to do a whole separate podcast on gun control. Okay, football-y stuff. From Timothy Bennett, who's your favorite coach, assistant, and head coach, and why? Uh, let's see. Let me stick to assistant coaches for now. One of the, uh, and I've got a bunch of my favorites. I don't want to single anybody out right now. I will say Frank Gantz Sr. Uh, was a guy that I think, I think in some ways saved my NFL career, or at least extended it by like five years. When I first came into the league, I was not a good tackler. Um, I didn't have good technique, didn't have good timing. Very few coaches actually know how to coach tackling. I think more are getting better at it now because as you practice without pads on more often, guys have to get, they have to figure out a way to teach how to tackle. So now instead of just having you run into each other really hard and screaming to wrap up, they're actually working rugby tackling techniques. And I think that's gotten a lot better. Frank Gant Sr. 
was a, uh, a former Naval Academy guy. He was a, a jet pilot after he was in the Naval Academy, and then he coached in the NFL for a long time. He had both tackling and hitting down to a science, and I think he would have changed some things given what they've learned with rugby tackling now. Um, <clears throat> but he he had teaching tapes. He had drills. He did all these things, and I went in one year because one year in the offseason – I went and worked with him, you know, with his special teams groups. Even though I wasn't on special teams, I would work with a kickoff uh, a team when they were doing their tackling drills. And then I'd work with them on my own time. And I went from being like a pretty shoddy tackler to being a really good tackler in the, in the course of one offseason. All without pads, no helmet, anything like that, just all drill work. And that's where I get, I get frustrated sometimes when people act like the reason for poor tackling is that you're taking the pads off. Like, no, it's it's poor coaching. The reason for poor tackling is poor coaching. Two things. One, it's poor coaching. Two, it's also today's game, especially in colleges. There's just more green grass. Everybody, Everything's spread out. It's all open field tackling, and it's really, really hard to open field tackle. But that's why the teams that actually focus on the fundamentals and focus on tackling have a huge advantage because you turn – you know, instead of a bone jarring hit or a turnover, you also, though, you keep second and seven from becoming second and two. And then all of a sudden you're in third and seven and you've got a chance at forcing an interception or an incompletion or, or anything like that. Let's see. Uh, from from <laughs> uh, from Lance's Zerline? 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 I don't know how you pronounce it. Uh, how much karate do you do? <clears throat> uh, Lance, Lance, I know, will appreciate this because... Martial arts have a big part in a lot of offensive and defensive line technique. The guy that kind of revolutionized that was a guy named Tunch Ilkin. He was a left, I think he was a left tackle, a left tackle for the Steelers back in the in the 70s and 80s. And it was right around when they first allowed offensive linemen to start using their hands. So there were a lot of guys that just frankly didn't really have good technique. But some of these guys on the offensive and defensive line, like Randy White, uh, was was big into martial arts. He was you know a defensive lineman that did it really well in that same era. Where when all of a sudden you could start using your hands, it wasn't just about who could run the fastest or who was the biggest, um, you know, or who could deliver a forearm shiver. It was it was who could use their hands really well. So Tunch Ilkin was only about 260 pounds and would just carve people up with his hands because he had this martial arts backgrounds and he would I think he had he put out videotapes called Tunches Punches and we used to watch him and do some of these drills with my position coach John Pease in Jacksonville he's another one of my favorite assistant coaches so uh, I did I've never trained karate uh, or kung fu or anything else like that but I feel like with a lot of the hand drills you do and and I always tell kids this like, this is what sets you apart. You might not be able to bench press 500 pounds. You might not be able to run fast. But if you have really, really good hands, you can neutralize the dude that benches 500. You can neutralize the guy that runs a 4740 really, really well. And it's um, it's like a cheat code in a lot of ways. If you, can, if you can just get really good with your hands and strong with your hands and drill it to the point where it just becomes automatic. John Randall... John Randall wasn't necessarily as much of a hand guy as much as a, a Tasmanian devil, but he used to just he used to like walk through the mall and drill pass rush moves on people. I used to do that kind of in my mind all the time with my hands. I wouldn't just you know hit spin moves or anything, but uh, just constantly visualizing and using your hands and practicing those moves. Football is a hard sport to practice because you get you get hit. 
you get you know you get injured. So the, as much as you can do and as much as you can practice without hitting anybody, um, that helps a lot, and that's why martial arts uh, helps a lot too. Alfie Solomons asks me, what was one big thing you were not prepared for as a rookie in the NFL and one thing when you started in broadcasting? That is a very good question. And I, if I can kill two birds with one stone, I would say this. Um, hold on a second here. I've got an issue here on my computer, I think. Okay. Uh, this is what I would say. I, I think the once you start doing something full-time, because my first like truly full-time job for something other than working on a farm in the summers was playing football. And then obviously I'm, I'm a full-time broadcaster now. The danger, the danger of over-preparing, and I don't think it's, it's never dangerous to over-prepare. I don't think you can ever study too much unless it starts affecting your sleep or it starts affecting your mental health. And when you're in a performance industry like playing football, you have to walk a fine line between over-preparing to the point where A, you're physically or mentally fatigued, and then B, that you start suffering from paralysis by analysis when you're on the field. And a lot of times that's what will happen is you'll prepare so much that you're just out there thinking too much. So uh, the same thing happens with sports radio where you start stressing out about like, man, I've got four, I've got four fucking hours that I've got to talk about and there's nothing going on. What the hell am I going to talk about? And, and when I was first starting out in radio, I would have these long bullet point items and I'd have intricate notes about all these things. And what happens then is that you end up, you can't have a conversation because you're thinking I got to hit all these points and you end up sounding like a babbling fool, like a, a rambling fool, which I still do at times, but it's more organic when I do now. So I would learn to just still prepare as much, but the really, the really important stuff is going to stick. Like you're going to know it. If you just have three bullet points that are three words a piece, that's enough, you know, in a given topic, a given segment, and then everything that you really feel about something can, can flow out of that. Likewise in football, what I learned and kind of the mantra that I always used to remind myself with was to to prepare like it's war and to be hyper serious about it, but then play the game like it's a game. And so like I would be I would be terrified during the week. I'd be petrified of messing up. I didn't want to screw anything up. I wanted to be as prepared as possible. I wanted to know everything about my opponent, about the opposing offense, all of those things. Um, you know, in with, without preparing myself to where I was physically tired or mentally tired. But then on game day, just let it go. Because what happens is just like in radio, where if you've just if, if you know what you care about and you know what you know, everything flows out of you. When you walk on the field or a wrestling mat or anywhere else, if you're prepared, you're going to give your best effort. It's just your body naturally rises to the occasion. The competition takes care of itself. That juice is going to be there. The only thing you can do is get in your own way by thinking too much. So as I got further and further along in the NFL, I think I got better at taking it really serious during the week and then taking it really easy on game day. And and I think like the last few years I was playing football, I didn't I didn't even really get nervous on game days because if I I it, it, I knew it was harmful and detrimental for me to waste energy being nervous and nothing was going to change. You know, me being nervous at 8 a.m. didn't do a damn thing for me at noon. So I'd say the the value and the danger of over preparing is what I what I wasn't necessarily ready for when I started out either of those things. Uh, Big Slim seventy three asks, 
Uh, how do you defeat a double team, stun and separate, or push, pull, and get skinny? I, th- I think that depends on how beastly you are. If you're if you're able to shock the guy in front of you and drive him back, and you also weigh 340 pounds, so that guard that's that's got his shoulder pad in your ribs isn't really moving you, then I would say stun and separate. Uh, I was always more of a push, pull, and get skinny guy in the NFL. That's where you just kind of split the two guys and then pop up and hopefully make the tackle just because it's uh, it's easier. Let's see. There is I've got these. I, like I said, I've got a coalition. Uh, I've got a, a collating issue here. Oh, I guess this would be the. Oh, all right. <laughs> There's like three questions here about uh, did I want to punch Josh? Uh, why didn't you put Josh in it? All right. Uh, I look I, without going too far into the the argument that Josh Inez and I got on Radio Row. I think I didn't once feel like I wanted to punch him during that argument for a couple of reasons. One is I, I had issues with some things Josh had been saying on the radio and how he had been talking about how he was going to mess with us on Radio Row. So I was I was kind of I was peaked for that. But when he was in my face, um, it, like he didn't really say anything overly personal, you know. Like I, I don't feel like he said any fighting words. We had an argument. We had disagreements. I felt like a lot of the things he was saying were easily enough countered and I think this job this job's gotten me pretty good at using my words when I'm angry because you talk for four hours a day and at various points you get angry and obviously you can't there's nobody to punch I can't punch Mike I'd get I'd lose my job um so you learn to use your words when you're angry and I, I I really felt like if I'd gotten in that argument my first year in broadcasting I don't know maybe I would have done something stupid um but uh it's I I don't feel that way anymore so I never I never once felt that way and you know who knows I, I don't know Josh and I view I guess maybe radio feuds and things differently the biggest thing that I just uh the biggest thing that upsets me about that whole situation is just that I, I used to be friends with him and then he started saying things that I didn't think were things that a friend would say and that pretty much ended the friendship so I, I that's that's just where I am with that and I know that some people have a different approach to radio um and I get that I understand that and uh, that's that's just where I am with that. But I never never really felt like punching him. Ryan the Martian said, "Oh, so this is the uh, the fighting section. Why is Paul Gallant trying to act like a rapper by beefing with everyone? I think Paul gets bored. Paul does a night show on Sports Radio 610, and uh, I think he called out the midday show the other day. And uh, look, I, I think he actually had an issue with one of the things they were doing on their show. But I think he also gets bored and he doesn't have much of a filter. So he said it and uh, he, he doesn't mind it. I, it, seems, it seems pretty playful. I've been listening to it. But if you listen to In the Loop Midday and listen to Paul Galan at night, you're going to hear uh, they're, they're, they're having some kind of beef right now about a segment that In the Loop did. Just Ed asks, have you ever consumed tomato juice on a flight? Uh, I saw this question already, too. And I'm going to tell you, Just Ed, this is what I did today. I, uh, I went to watch Jumanji at the theater with my wife and daughter. And because I had seen this question, I got myself a Bloody Mary for like a third time in my life. That's the only time I can ever remember consuming tomato juice is when it's part of a Bloody Mary. I uh, And I loved it. I thought Jumanji was actually a great movie. I don't know if it was partly because I had, uh, I had edamame and I had a Bloody Mary during the, the show. Because it was a 10 a.m. Look, look, it was appropriate. It was a 10 a.m. showing, so I had a Bloody Mary. And, uh, and I, I really liked Jumanji. I thought it was funny. 
I actually, uh, I was almost crying a little bit at the end. There's a little bit of an emotional uh, ending there to it, and and I'm not ashamed of it. Uh, I'm not ashamed to say that I almost cried at Jumanji. It was funnier than I anticipated. I think The Rock is really, really, really funny. I don't know if he's a good actor. I've seen some people say like, well, you know, he's not an actual actor. He's just a, a personality or charisma. Like, yeah, fine. I don't like what. What what the hell's Keanu Reeves? I don't even know what he is. I don't know. I I can't. I don't. Nothing can explain the existence of Keanu Reeves to me, other than that he's pretty successful at being Keanu Reeves. So I'm not going to sit here and criticize The Rock. He's hilarious. Um, I also noticed this. I think the reason I like the Bloody Mary is because it's spicy, so it gives you that warm sensation. I've grown, I've grown to really like the burning of alcohol, the the burning sensation, because I'll drink whiskey neat now too, and. I never liked that before at all, but now I'll sip. Part of it's because you're drinking this rock gut stuff in college that nobody's going to sip that. You'd be a moron. You need to just have a chaser as soon as possible. Now that I've uh, learned in life that there actually are good whiskeys, I just like sipping it, and it gives you like that nice warm feeling as it goes down your throat and into your chest. It's like it's um, it's like it's when you drink to fill that void in your soul, it's like it's both filling it and, and glazing it with a warm glaze, too. So it's extra. It's a little bit of filling the void in your soul with a little something extra. So I, I'm, I'm into Bloody Marys now. Not a good thing. I've had issues in my past with uh, when I start drinking in the morning at various times. Things don't go well for me either in that day or with life in general. So I'm not going to make this a habit. But in various circumstances, I'm going to start drinking Bloody Marys again. Uh, Andre asks, how hoppy do you like your beers? I feel like we could be bros, but this could make it or break it. Ooh, it's a lot of stress there, Andre. I, I don't know what to tell you other than that I'm not a beer snob. I like, uh, as you guys know, I'll drink my, I'll drink a bunch of, I'll drink a bunch of Bud Light. I, I especially love Bud Light in the summer um, because I feel, I, I know this doesn't make any sense, but I feel like it's hydrating me as I'm drinking it. Also, I just feel purer and cleaner when I'm drinking it. Uh, I do, I do like IPAs. I honestly, I, I can't even tell you the truth on this. I don't know if I like the taste or if, if I like that it's really strong alcohol because that, uh, I'll, I'll get that rodeo clown. From I think it's Carbach. The uh, is it is it Rodeo Clown? It's like double IPA. I I can remember the first time I tasted it. I thought it was pissed, but that's what everybody thinks about beer the first time you taste it. And then after a while, Car- uh, Rodeo Clown's like six percent alcohol, maybe even higher. So you're drinking two beers in one, and uh, and 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 I like that. So I like a hoppy beer. Uh, hop the the hoppy beers originally were that hoppy. Because it kept the beer from going bad on the long ver- uh, on the long trip to India, I think that's why they call it India Pale Ale. If I remember, no, 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 in IPA is it India Pale Ale? Yeah, the I comes from India, and it's because the extra hops helped preserve the beer on the long trip to India. That's what I remember. Go ahead and fact check me on that, or just keep tell it to your friends, and I, I don't care. Uh, let's see, Blake Walker. I think we're getting into football-y stuff now here. Let's see. Blake, oh, this is all over the place. Let's go football-y stuff. Is Lamar Jackson a QB or a wide receiver? I think some are confused. Second, if the Jags somehow get him, how long do they own the division? So this is what I'll say. At the 46-minute mark, we might start getting a little Houston Texan-y here. Um, but Lamar Jackson is a QB or a wide Look, he's a, he is a quarterback until he's not a quarterback no more. And I think that whoever drafts him is going to want him to be a quarterback 
I think that there are a few mechanical issues he has, which theoretically should be able to fix, be fixable. I, I'm just always skeptical of this. Whenever somebody has mechanical issues and lower body mechanical issues are a lot easier to fix than upper body mechanical issues. So what they'll say is that he has a narrow base and sometimes that leads to his inaccuracies. So can you just work on his footwork and his base? Okay, I, I get that. But he's also played football for, I'm guessing, 10 or 12 years. And I'm always skeptical when a college quarterback has these mechanical issues that somehow an NFL coach, oh, an NFL coach don't know how to do this. Well, you know what Bobby Petrino is? He's a damn NFL coach. He's a pretty damn smart coach. So I don't know if it's as simple as that, but I do know that he's just got this electric athleticism, um, and he does it well playing quarterback. And when his, when he's on target, his arm looks freaking awesome. It's just a matter of when it just goes haywire for whatever reason. If you can rein that in, you got to make him a quarterback. And, and again, as far as the being worried about the Jacksonville part, I don't know how good he'll be. Just like I don't know how any of these guys, Jared, I, I don't know how any of these guys will fare long term as quarterbacks. But I know if you're facing Lamar Jackson on any given Sunday and you're the defense on the other side of him, that is a motherfucking nightmare. Playing against guys like that just sucks because there's no preparing for him. There's nothing you can do sometimes. I played against Steve McNair. And there's just, uh, like, you could have an awesome game plan. You're shutting down Eddie George. You're you're shutting down everybody else. And all of a sudden, Steve McNair just takes off for 70 yards. And there's nothing you can do about it. It sucks. It just, it absolutely sucks. So I don't want to see a dude who's not nearly as big as Steve McNair, but who's faster than any wide receiver on the field. I don't want to see him twice a, twice a year. That's a, that's a scary, scary thought. Let's see. Uh, have the Astros added a legitimate closer? Uh, as of this podcast, depending on how you feel about those guys, I would say no. Other than this, uh, this Anthony Ghost seems intriguing because he's play, he played five years as a position player, and now uh, he's a paragraph five guy that, um, or the the rule five draft guy that uh, that throws a hundred miles an hour. He's claiming a hundred miles an hour. I think they've only clocked him at ninety nine point eight miles per hour. Whatever. That's intriguing, but I don't think that the, the, I think the stat that Hunter Atkins said in the Chronicle was that there are only eight guys in Major League history that have been established position players like for a period of years and then come back and been a pitcher. But I don't know. Maybe he's the guy that'll come in and start throwing heat at 100 miles an hour. This pitching staff seems to have a pretty good knack for getting the most out of guys. We'll see. Uh, let's see. This would be Houston specific. Lynn Cooper says, favorite Houston restaurants. Oh, let's see. Off the top of my head, I would say Backstreet Cafe. Um, love Backstreet Cafe because my wife and I have been going there pretty much the whole time we've been in Houston. Uh, I will say El Tiempo also, part, partly because that was my first exposure to like really, really high-quality Tex-Mex food. I'd never had, you know, prime prime a1 quality beef in a taco before like when i went to el tiempo and then partly because i've just got a lot of great memories from going there after games with teammates um my wife and i used to live real close to the one up on washington and uh and and i just loved it I had some great experiences there and i don't get there as much as i used to but they also have very they have very strong margarita they mix a they mix a damn strong margarita and it leads to good times I should have brought that up in the drinking section, I suppose. Tim Banks asks, will the Texans move up into the second round? Um, 
I'll tell you this. They very easily could. They've got three third-round picks at this point. I think they're going to get antsy, and they're going to move up into the second round. That's scary uh, just because, look, uh, is it worth it, or do you just actually need to round out the roster? You can get some really good football players in the third round, but I think there's going to be somebody that catches their eye, and they will trade up. It's not going to be anybody... If it's a name guy, then there's a reason that name guy fell to the second round. If it's a really good player that you've never heard of, that's why he's in the second round, and we'll see what happens with it. But I, I think the one thing that happens on draft day, and those first two days of the draft over those first three rounds, is it's a time warp. Like, you just... Time lasts forever. So I don't know, is that a time warp or is that the opposite of time warp? Whatever, it's a mind fuck. It's that... Everything seems way, way, way longer than it is. The time between picks, the time between rounds. And when all those guys are sitting there watching these players that they like go off the board one by one by one over the course of two days, you know, like the first and second round will be over the course of what, 24 to 28 hours or so. They're, they're just going to be sitting there on their hands. I think. People get antsy, and they're going to start wanting to do something. And I think psychology wins out a lot of times. They're going to want to jump up there and get somebody. So I think they will. Uh, In-N-Out versus Whataburger, I think that's obvious. I think Whataburger just because uh, just because the uniqueness of it. I think like, In-N-Out Burger is fine, and I've had it, and it's good. And I know they've got like their secret menu, and that's interesting and all. And it's got this cult-like following on the West Coast. And I think is it in Austin now? Whatever. Uh, like, like a burger is largely a burger. Whataburger is kind of unique as it's not fast food, whatever it is, as a burger joint goes, which is a which is something that when people first come to Texas or wherever there's a Whataburger is a little bit of a, a shock to your system is that you you're used to ordering food in a drive through then getting it relatively quickly. That was that was a shock to my system back in 2002. I was trying to play nose guard in a three four. Damn it, needed to bulk up. Then I had to wait. Let's see. The man of still says the Texans are saying they want to draft more speed. That didn't work out so well the last time they did it in 16. Uh, how about drafting more good football players? Oh, oh, damn. You know what? I'll tell you, if you want both, uh, the kid the kid from University of Central Florida. Is it Griffin? Sh- oh, shoot. I want to say Shaquem Griffin. Um, the kid from University of Central Florida that only wa- has one hand. That kid, if you want both, that's the kid you want. Because let me I'm gonna look this up. I can't believe I can't remember his name. Um, it's Griffin, but it's uh, it's uh, yeah, Shaquem Griffin. Ah, uh, man, when I can remember watching him, it was versus University of Houston, and it was like damn near into the second quarter before I realized that kid only had one hand. Because what leaps out to you immediately is that he's all over the place. He is fast as hell. He's intense. He hits like he is everywhere but he doesn't have one hand he ran an unofficial 438 i think at the combine today or yesterday uh and i and i think his second one was slower but it's like sub four five if this if this kid runs a 4440 i don't give a damn because he's got every other attribute that you want if you if you had like a list of 20 attributes um and you go size speed intensity desire linebacker instincts hand uh look or two hands he's got five of six of those but the five that he does have are so so good that I think that you ignore it a little bit I think it's like with Jason Pierre Paul look Jason Pierre Paul if if Jason Pierre Paul wasn't blessed like he is would he be able to get away with only having however many fingers he has on the one hand now after his fireworks accident 
Hell no. But he's a damn freak of nature. And this kid, this kid isn't a physical freak in terms of size, the way that Jason Pierre-Paul is, but he's a freak in a lot of other ways. And there's a video, if you haven't seen it yet, watch him doing the bench press at the Combine where he's got this special prosthetic that latches onto the bar with his left hand so he can bench. And he benched 20 times, which is respectable enough for a smaller linebacker. This kid, like, I want this kid on my football team. I want this kid on my football team. Everything that's right in America, like, is encompassed in this kid. This kid is awesome. I don't, like, and I don't even know anything. I haven't read anything other than his story about how he had to have his hand removed when he was a child. Like, I don't know about anything off the field between then and now. I don't, I haven't, like, seen interviews with his coaches or anything. I just know what I've seen on the film, and I know his basic story about his hand. That kid is everything you want in a football player. God, I I hope... Whoever your team is, you should hope to have that guy on the team. And it's not even it's it's not like a pity thing. And it's not like, oh, that's a nice story. We should have that nice story on our team. It's that the the lack of a hand is everything about him. Like, would he have that same passion and fire if he had two hands? I'm guessing not. You know, that helped forge him into what he is. So it's the whole package. The lack of a hand, you could say, is a strength as much as it is anything else. It's gonna be a liability when it comes to honing pass rush skills it's going to be a liability in tackling um you know like this this is obvious it's i feel like at the right draft pick he's going to figure out a way to overcome this like that's the that's the absolute last kid that i would want to count out you got three for you got three third round picks take them to the damn third round big steve austin says how could true detective season one be such a magical tv season and season two be such a complete abomination that obviously wasn't on the tv side of things um uh, you know what man i think that season one was season one and then when you tried to do season two and kind of keep the same genre but and, and keep some of the same elements but do a completely different plot with completely different categories it's just it's not that easy it's it's like think about all the people that are on great sitcoms that are never on something successful again it's not that they're bad actors. It's not that anything was wrong with them or anything. It's just that that one sitcom when it hit was the perfect confluence of events of talent and characters and whatever was going on in current events and with style, uh, the, the, the various styles of television at the time. That was it for right then. And that's what I think he had with True Detective season one. And they were kind of, I think they were fucked the moment that it happened. They're just, it's going to be really hard to replicate that with brand new characters and everything else that goes along with, not to mention, you know, you know, these creative types, I don't know, the director, the writers, all of those people, once there's all that pressure to kind of serialize something, maybe, maybe it just felt cheaper. Maybe it felt like whatever special they had with season one, they could have replicated it with season two if they used the same characters. But look, you're also, you're dealing with movie actors there. Like Matthew McConaughey. He's got a lot of stuff going on. Is Matthew McConaughey going to sign on to do a TV? Does he seem like the kind of guy that's going to be happy doing the same character every single year? I don't think so. I don't think so. And that's not an insult to people that do it. He just seems like he's out looking for new challenges. Uh, ben Almeida asked earlier on, what is the next Google or Amazon that is a habit-changing entity or innovation? Shit. We should probably end this right here. I don't know, man. Um, I would think that something... I don't know if it'll be a company, if there's one company that pioneers and really streamlines the ability to um, 
use like CRISPR technology, this gene splicing and editing technology. If there's one company that does that, where you can basically re-engineer your genes, I think that's the next really, 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 really big thing because it's going to change the way we view. It's going to change the way we view everything about the way our bodies work. Um, you know, if you can if you can stamp out various genetic diseases or predispositions to disease, if you can change the way you age, if it changes the way uh, you view every, I mean, that's going to change everything. That'll be life altering way more than your smartphone was. Um, but I don't know if one company, I don't think one company ends up doing that. I think it's a bunch of different companies. So I, I don't know if you ask me what the next Google or Amazon is, you'd have to say like, Hey Seth, go back, go back to 1997 when Amazon was selling books online and uh, did you know what it was going to become then? You know, like, what the, what the hell is Amazon anyway uh, versus what it started out at? Is there, what is Google? Like, yeah, which search engine is going to become this thing that's so much more than a search engine? I don't know, man. Ben, I'm not, that's, that's above my pay grade. So there you go. What did we do here? We did, uh, we, did, we did 59 minutes. I almost did an hour with a whole lot of different stuff. I'm going to dive in deep and start doing some interviews with people. And uh, thanks to everybody who stuck around for the full hour. Uh, I'll, maybe I'll get some intro music. Maybe I won't. We'll see. It'll maybe start to have a certain charm. I've got a black and white picture on the, the podcast album cover or whatever you call that thing, the podcast art. Maybe I'll just stay, maybe I'll stay unadorned like the Puritans who founded this great land and not have music or anything else that Satan might tempt us with. Deceptively Fast Podcast. You could spend the weekend doing the same old whatever, or you could conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey.